0: Welcome to the Dead Men Podcast. Dead Men's mission is to equip disciples of Jesus and grow church leaders.
1: But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And in your teachings show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you.
0: In, in today's episode, uh, we started out today because with Titus 2, because in today's episode we talk about it a ton. And uh, this is going to be a fun one. We're really excited about this episode. Colin asked some good questions for once, and I didn't cough all over the microphone most of the time. So we're excited about this one.
1: Nate. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about what makes a healthy church. Like, I mean, for me, I mean, this is something that, that's pretty pretty near and dear to my heart because I feel like um, I haven't experienced a whole lot of super healthy churches. I mean, I've been a part of a bunch of churches that have had pastors fall due to due to different errors. Um moral failings is a nice way to put it and then i've been a part of a few churches that have massive church splits and and all sorts of other unhealth so this is something that's near and dear to my heart to learn a little bit about more what a healthy church is i mean what is your what is your experience been like with churches do you feel like you a part of a bunch of
0: healthy ones i'm i'm with you i mean i've i've been a part of of churches that have failed in spectacular fashion i think we've already talked about it on here before yeah on previous episodes but i i was at mars hill which is now broken up into a whole bunch of individual churches by campus more or less and uh you know i brandon scalf who is one of the founders the founder of dead men um he was a part of the journey, which has had its, you know, health issues with Darren Patrick stepping down and you were part of Coral Ridge. And, um, you know, even my local church here now in Indianapolis is going through some stuff at the moment. And, um, and and then even just seeing that dig up issues for other people in the congregation who've been through things, you know, I've, I've some really good friends who, it kind of in the midst of what's been going on at, at the local church that I'm a part of at, at midtown um they they left because it so much reminded them of what they'd gone through in the past and uh, I it's I, I think that yeah talking about an unhealthy church is is kind of timely right now and I'm really looking forward to hearing what Justin has to say about it
1: yeah me too man I, it, it's I think it's the most frustrating thing for me is because I know like there's been so many, Millennials and people that I've grown up with um, Who have left the church And part of the reason they left the church Is they've just been hurt or or burned I think the other thing that's difficult for me Is that if they haven't left the church I've seen people who have been hurt and burned In a reformed camp In a reformed church And so as a reaction They've completely just up and left And gone a completely different direction One of my good friends uh, He was hurt by uh, a reformed church and so now he's gone to to this complete opposite end of the spectrum, uh, very liberal in his Christianity. Yeah. So 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 much so that I'm like, dude, I'm a little worried. Like, yeah. are you are you actually do you, are you actually holding to any any some of the essential orthodox essentials of the faith? Like that's that. I mean, so I've seen a lot of church hurt hurt people. And that's something that healthy churches is like, I'm I'm interested to see what Justin has to say today.
0: Yeah. Because it's I, w- really, I would
1: love to learn it.
0: Yeah, it's really hard because we recoil from the things that hurt us, right? You know, if you reach out and touch a hot stove, you, you pull your hand back and, and then you go running under cold water, right? The opposite thing of of the heat that you touched. And I, I think we've seen that a lot recently. Like, I, I even think of, like, Dustin Kensaroo, who has started tweeting some real weird stuff and has put out some songs that have some kind of weird messages in them. And, you know, he's one of those guys that I think has been, you know, burned a little bit by the reformed church. He was a part of Mars Hill and has, has as a result recoiled. And, and, you know, you, I think, I think he kind of real quickly end up at universalism and, and some of these like really liberal other kind of theologies. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad. It's hard to watch that, right? And so the the old adage, church would be really easy if it wasn't for the people involved. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah,
1: so it's just it's convicting. It's convicting too because we're those people, mate. Yeah, you and I. Yeah, we're those people. Wait, so, wait, wait I mean, wait.
0: we're the we're the the ones that are messing everything up. We're, we're we're part of we're part of the people in the church, Nate. Oh no, I know. Stuff right. well, I'll so, tell you what then. Let's ask Justin how to not mess up our own churches. <laughs> I'm there with you. Let's All do right, it. well, here we go. We're gonna join a conversation already in progress with Justin Huffman. All right, let's do it. No, shut up. We're listening, Colin. And what are you doing today, Justin? <laughs>
2: Well, right now, I'm actually, it's a Saturday, so I uh, just dropped my kids off uh, for tennis uh, lessons and uh, uh, commandeered a little corner of the fitness center and hoping oh, nice. the Wi Fi holds. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: How old are your kids? Um, we got, I've got four children. Uh, the oldest three are the ones playing tennis. Uh, they're age 13, 10, and 10.
0: So you have twins? Well, they're not
2: actually twins. All our kids are adopted, and these two oh, okay, are adopted gotcha. from. They're adopted from Vietnam. Uh, they call them virtual twins because they're they're literally two days apart. They grew up in the same orphanage. They've been together since huh. uh, you know two days after birth or something, and um, and so they feel like twins to each other. I mean, they 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 do everything together. They're in the same class together, uh, but they're not biologically related. So they yeah they call them virtual twins.
0: Huh, that's cool. And they're ten. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. How'd you uh how'd you come across the decision to adopt? What'd that look like?
2: Yeah, well, um interestingly, I was working in Memphis, Tennessee at the time and I was working uh in the inner city of Memphis and uh just felt a real burden as I saw some of the challenges uh that some of the kids there were facing. I just told my wife, even before we knew we were having trouble having kids, um that I uh, really had a burden for adoption, and um, and so then it turned out we were having trouble having kids, and huh. and um, so uh, just the way that things went, we ended up um, because of you know just the programs that were available at the time and so on. Uh, we ended up adopting from Russia first, our oldest, and then two from Vietnam, and then our youngest is two and a half years old, and she's from Arkansas.
0: So, huh, cool, very cool.
1: So, where did you grow up? Are you from the Memphis area? Yeah, mainly. My
2: my my parents were uh, they traveled a lot, so I was born in Germany. My earliest memories are in Australia, but but I mainly grew up in Memphis. That's the you know where I went to school and that kind of thing.
0: What took you guys overseas?
2: Uh, wanderlust, I think, would be would be okay, the honest. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what. All, my, my parents were both teachers. Um, my dad was uh, brilliant, and uh, so he went over. They went over to Germany. He he learned German in like uh, three months or something, and wow. uh, started teaching there. Uh, he taught science. My mom taught English, which is easier, obviously. Um, uh, and then they went. F- they then they really traveled a lot while they were uh, while their home base was in Germany for three years, and
1: then ended up in Australia, and eventually uh, came back to the states. Huh, cool. So, what was that like? Um, were you, I mean, were you raised in a Christian family?
2: I was, yeah. Um, My dad, um, actually, this is part of why we ended up back in the States. My dad, actually, for most of my memory, wrestled with uh, some nervous disorder, uh, sort of uh, bipolar, schizophrenia. Um, So I remember visiting him as a, as a young child in the nursing, I mean, in the uh, um, jail and in the uh, mental hospital and things. And so just the the needs of that necessitated that we moved back to the States and moved to uh, Memphis, where my mom had some family, and extended family that could help us. And so my mom worked the whole time I was growing up, and my dad was disabled. And, um, and so, yeah, it was a little bit... Um, a little bit of an unusual situation, but they were both Christian, and, uh, and God was gracious to provide. Actually, we were able to go to a Christian school that my, uh, my uh, uncle was principal of, and so we got to go mm-hmm. there. And uh, so the Lord provided in, in great ways. Um, and then my dad, eventually, after we got married, my dad and mom moved in with us. And then four years after moving in with us, um, about 10 years ago now, uh, he passed away of a heart mm-hmm. attack. Uh, so, but God was awesome and gracious to him. Um, I mean, it was really beautiful to see how the Lord worked in his life. Uh, he he died um, that morning. It was just three days after Christmas. He was um, he was listening to audio Bible, which he always does. I mean, he went through every single sermon uh, cassette and CD in our church library. He's listening to audio Bible, mm-hmm. making my mom a cup of coffee, and then just laid down and passed away. So,
1: mm-hmm. that's that's uh, that's that's hard. Um, I'm sorry about that. I, I am curious, uh, though. Growing up, growing up in a family that they're, they're they're Christians, they're moving around a lot. Did you get expo- exposed to a lot of different types of churches in in Europe and in, in Australia and some of the other places that you lived?
2: Yeah. Um, well, so I would. I should. I should say that my both my parents would probably be the first to. To they would be definitely be the first to admit that they weren't walking as close to the Lord as they should have been during those times of travel and so on. But yes, um, like my earliest menis- my earliest memories were uh, in um, some uh, charismatic churches, and then we ended up on sort of the other extreme the, um, of, of sort of the Christian circles, which was a very conservative uh, sort of fundamentalist church. And um, and so yeah, it was it was interesting to to be exposed to to you know such a wide variety
1: of uh, of Christian expression. Okay, cool. So how. When you ended up, so you grew up in in a family. I mean, your dad was clearly brilliant. Uh, your mom's smart too, as an as an educator. So you grew up in a, a family where knowledge was knowledge was kind of central, uh, especially with with moving and, and other things like that. Uh, and I know your dad ended up ended up having some struggles. So I can see how that would give you a heart or or, or soften your heart for people who are, are going through different trials. Well, how did you feel called to ministry? Yeah,
2: I appreciate your asking. Well, one, I remember growing up in church, you know, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, Christian school, and, of course, Christian church. And so in some ways I was very, you know, I was in a little bubble. Um, And I I distinctly remember um, my uncle, who was my pastor, uh, would, um, you know, point out at at the, as in the middle of a sermon, he might point out to the crowd and say, you know, God may call one of you young men to preach the gospel one day. And I would get this sick feeling in my stomach, like, you know, he better not, what a cruel thing
0: that would be to do.
2: <laughs> um i just i was not at all interested in that whatsoever um but uh but in in so so I, I went through a period when i went to college i went to a large public university and um for me familiarity had i, I was a professing believer in god i think did uh preserve me thankfully but i definitely went through some struggles and um,- you know, familiarity had sort of bred some contempt. I was in the Bible belt, um, and but when I went to the to the university, I was kind of like, you know, um, just interested in exploring every single option that was out there. So I really wrestled spiritually throughout uh, all of my college uh, four years, but in my senior year, Um, The Lord really started—I mean, He'd just broken me down over and over again. He really started working on me um, to—I'd gone back to sort of all the questions. Is there a God? Yes, okay, there is a God. You know, okay, how does it—I was dealing with different pressures, you know, social pressures and academic pressures and, and, you know, these different things that were— Pressing against my Christianity most usually, and um, and so after I'd sort of wrestled through those things, I just felt uh, strangely maybe to go from one extreme to the other, from from wrestling through them to feeling called to the ministry because I guess in my mind I just felt like there's got to be other people who are wrestling with this as well, and I'd love to help them. I'd love to I'd love to encourage other people who have um, you know maybe. Uh, wondered if their faith is real, and and, um, and and struggled with their faith in Christ, and so on. And so the Lord started calling me to the ministry in my senior year in college, and but even then, after after college, I went through a period of of chastening where the Lord was kind of taking me apart and putting me back together, and uh, I do remember sort of you know, reluctantly saying, okay, I mean, I didn't say this out loud because I knew better than to say it, but I basically was like, okay, Lord, I'll do you a favor and, and I'll go into the ministry, you know. <laughs> and um, and and God just doesn't let you do it on those terms. So, um, so He kept tearing me apart um, until I definitely remember, distinctly remember, um, just uh, in my apartment alone, just really uh, weeping and praying to the Lord and saying, you know, Lord, if you would grant me the privilege of ministering to your people, I would love nothing more than to be useful in your service. So yeah, he has a way of bringing you around to where it is what you want, uh, but not necessarily what you always wanted. So.
0: So what was kind of the next step from there?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, so I had um, I got I got married and got a job uh, soon afterwards. But I was working in um, actually for the federal government, uh, so so not em, not employed in ministry. And so I got I kind of went backwards as far as uh, the direction of ministry is concerned. I I, um, I started doing inner city uh, ministry in Memphis with uh, different national. There was a little sort of small. Um, Area a few blocks of Memphis where all the where all the immigrants sort of uh, immediately came, and so it was neat. Every building was almost like a little nation. You'd have a little little China, you know, little uh, Hispanic uh, building, and a, and a Vietnamese, and so on. And my wife, uh, her family is Vietnamese, so I originally started going there to minister to the Vietnamese, thinking the Lord was calling me there. Um, but he, he ended up doing something different, and I ended up ministering mainly among the Hispanic uh, folks there, um, hmm. with an eight-year-old boy as my translator. <laughs> and so, um, You know, the kids are just amazing. He'd been there two years and was able to speak English without an accent, so he was just remarkable. Um, but, uh, so I started doing ministry in the inner city. And then people started asking me to fill in pulpits uh, where wherever you know they it was needed in the city, and so on. And eventually a church called me to uh, to ordain me and called me to be uh, their pastor. Um but even then, I was bivocational in the ministry. and so it wasn't until a little over, I guess now about seventeen years ago, um, I was called to full-time ministry. and as soon as I, was called a full-time ministry, I, I started, I just quickly began to feel my inadequacy um, in, in as far as my preparation and everything for this. And so, um, so back then, back, uh, you know, in the dark ages, um, uh, <laughs> RTS was actually, Reformed Theological Seminary was one of the groundbreaking seminaries when it came to uh, uh, theological education uh, that was by extension when you couldn't be on campus. And here in Cincinnati, one of the unique, things about, uh, even though it's a fairly conservative city in a lot of ways, as far as a good, solid seminary, there's nothing within a two-hour circle. Um, I, I mean, uh, yeah. the, one, the one there in uh, Louisville is great, a so- a Southern Seminary, of course, but it's nowhere near where you can just, you know, commute back and forth. So um, so RTS, I ended up going, doing their RTS Global Program, which was magnificent, getting to uh, sit under uh, John Frame and Michael Kruger and other just great minds, um, and and so I sort of did it backwards though. I ended up doing seminary after I was in the ministry.
0: Huh. So so how, so you did that all essentially online. I'm sure you I'm sure you had to travel to campus every now and then, but but you did that all yeah. remotely.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, huh. through yeah through the through the Canvas, you know, internet. Uh, Based uh, uh, distance education, it was it was really actually I have to say about RTS they they, they I think a lot of universities sort of just throw that program off um, onto uh, you know whatever uh lesser professors are willing to mess with it yeah. uh, but they actually brought in their their heavy hitters and uh so Simon Kistemaker I don't know if you're familiar with him but he's written you know mm-hmm. huge great commentaries um so Simon Kistemaker, John Frame, these guys were actually involved in the global, you know, I mean, these guys were grading papers and stuff. Um, so it was, it was really an neat <laughs> program It was, uh, that one of the things that was so unique about it was that they, they invested in it seriously and said, no, we want this to be a quality program, not just a sort of a sideshow to what we're doing.
0: So how did being in ministry before going to seminary shape your time at seminary?
2: Yeah, boy, that's a great question because I, I handled it totally differently than I did college. Um, yeah, in college, I, you know, basically it was just study to get the grade, uh, procrastinate until you absolutely have to study, and then cram it all in. And as long as you pass the test, I succeeded. And as long as I got my degree, I succeeded. And that was really, I mean, that was the goal for me, honestly uh, just pass the test and, and get the diploma. But uh, but yeah, I'll say doing seminary the way I did, and I'm not necessarily recommending this because it is much more difficult when you've got a family and you you know got other obligations and yeah. things. It's a beautiful thing if you can do it, you know, when you when you're a little more flexible. But. Um, but I, I'll say this: Yeah, you, 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 everything you're studying, you all. Re- I mean, you don't have to. It's not like you're wondering how to apply this. It's just like it's it's applied almost as soon as you get it. I mean, yeah. it's just as fast as it's coming in, it's going out. And so it was really a blessing in that regard that you're you're studying to know, you're studying to learn, to increase real knowledge and understanding, not just to, uh, you know, pass a test. So that makes a huge
0: difference. So then flipping that the other way, how did seminary impact your ministry?
2: Oh, yeah, just marvelously, because, um, you know, the way way I say it is really they, I don't feel like they were competing with each other at all, even though, of course, time-wise, sometimes I had to dedicate uh, either, you know, I can't. Can't oh, both visit, yeah. visit somebody in the hospital and study for a test at the same time. But as far as ministry, uh, overall ministry, I've definitely felt like they fed each other. And so, um, so what I was doing in my counseling and preaching and uh, you know elder meetings and so on definitely informed my papers and and the things that I was studying with RTS. But it was also vice versa, where the things I was studying. Or just uh, you know, um, I could immediately see, oh, this could be so helpful over here. And and um, and so, for instance, doing a uh, doing a survey class through Genesis definitely inspired me to do a a sermon series through Genesis. I was like, oh, I just love Genesis. I got to preach this. So, um, you know, that kind of thing really it really was a beautiful, uh, mutually beneficial uh, endeavor. I think.
1: Cool. How long did it take you to get through that Genesis series?
0: Do you remember? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. It was two two years. I'm actually so I'm a child of my generation, I think, and that is that I've got on one hand, I've got I've got a pretty short attention span. So, but on the other hand, Genesis is just huge. So, um, so I was doing um, a sermon, uh, basically a chat on average, a chapter per sermon. So it was like big survey, you know. Yeah. What I mean, fairly fairly broad brush, but Genesis is so big that it still takes two years to do
1: that. So, here you are now. You've you've been you had you have a real interesting life story. You've got a lot of a, a lot of twists and turns in preparation for ministry, and here you are. You just recently wrote a book called Adorned," and it's about uh, healthy churches. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about what caused you or what prompted you to write this write this book?
2: Yeah, well, you know, um, I've been uh, full time in the ministry now for over 15 years, and I've done, and that whole time I've been doing expository preaching. So basically, usually going between Old Testament books and New Testament books, alternating back and forth uh, in my preaching, just wanting my congregation to know and feel and see the sufficiency of Scripture and the uh, the way that it applies to their daily life, um, and and how tr- how tr- how Jesus is beautiful everywhere in the Old and New Testament. Um, and so uh, Titus, Titus two particularly struck me as just this as this uh, conversation about healthy churches is ongoing uh, in our in our Christian circles these days with Nine Marks Ministry and uh, Tim Keller writing his book Central Center Church and and other other excellent books that are out there. I just felt like uh, you know Titus two is just this wonderful concise encapsulation of Paul's. Healthy church theology, we might say. Um, he, he's uh, in just you know uh, a few brief verses, basically unpacking. This is what I, I think uh, is, is absolutely the, the essentials uh, for a church. So, um, so I felt like this is something that could be really beneficial for for my church, but also for for uh, other uh, churches and, and church leaders to especially think about. But really, because church affects all of us, I'd say every Christian to think about um, what, what does it mean for for a church to be healthy, what are what are the priorities that that really really are are not just um, things we you know may get around to, but things we must do um, in order to to really expect a church to be healthy and in, in the eyes of God anyway, a biblically beautiful church is the way I put the subtitle. Um, so you know it can be beautiful in the eyes of. Uh, you know uh, the general society because it's just really fast growing, or it's really impressive in this way or that. But what does a biblically beautiful church look like? Um, and in in Titus two, I think Paul's giving us his his encapsulation of that theology.
1: So what's the so? I mean, that there's the big question then. What is what makes a church beautiful? What is a biblically beautiful church then? What encompasses it?
2: yeah well, um the the illustration that I give in, in the book and and so I'm going to try to refer to it uh, here as well, just in order to to give a little bit of. Of uh, background or structure to 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 my description, is I, I picture the the <clears throat> the the healthy church like a flowering plant basically, and so um, if you if you picture a flowering plant, the ground that it is in is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the div- divine Jesus Christ. the The roots of the plant are the authority of God's word. So this is this is absolutely essential, um, and then. Um, and then the way that that healthy, nurturing ground and, and the the what the roots are pulling from get to the rest of the flower is the instruction. Um, so it might say the stem or bridge uh, for this nourishment is uh, is the instruction. So that may may come in discipleship, in authoritative teaching, um, and then the 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 flowering plant itself is the gospel-centered good works. And so uh, Paul is very. Very adamant about every one of those in Titus two. Um, there's no, there's no um, wiggle room for these particular issues. He says you must must be looking. In fact, he he actually defines the entire Christian life in terms of looking for our the promise coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, uh, so Paul is sees all of the Christian life as basically an expectation of. Uh, of, of Jesus uh, coming again i mean this is this is a, a, a crucial part of, of us and our what we're doing as as churches um, but then how does how does that What does that look like on the ground today, even though we're looking for Christ to come again? And and he goes on to say, um, in in very practical terms, um, Titus, you be a good model of of Christian living, and you be sure to tell older men to be discipling younger men and older women to be discipling younger women. And he even addresses... um, servants, uh, bond servants, that they need to be um, living in a certain way uh, with their masters, in fact, hoping that masters themselves might be redeemed through the through the, the witness of the gospel. And so there is just this this beautiful interplay of of day-to-day nuts and bolts on the ground practicality. But also, um, this is all empowered by uh, looking to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and uh, submitting to the authority of of God's Word. So, so yeah, it's it, the the healthy church is is one that is grounded in Christ and His Word, and is flourishing um, in in such a way that they are adorned with these the good works that are centered in the gospel.
1: So, what was what was kind of the the, the starting point, though, the thing that you said, like, I really feel like I need to study this more, and I need to read, I, I need to start writing and putting my thoughts on this down.
2: Well, it really came out of pastoring um, because you're, I, I think, any pastor is asking. I mean, I hope any pastor is asking <laughs> themselves this question. You know, what does a biblically healthy church look like, and in what ways, you know, does our church? My church, um, the churches that I look around that maybe even are looked up to um, you know in Christian circles as model churches. what what does the Bible say a healthy church looks like? and and so and what what kinds of things do I need to be prioritizing in my ministry? because, as you I'm sure you guys know, you know the 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 distractions are endless, you know. I mean, you, if you you just can't be a specialty in ever in everything, you can't do everything, and so and so. Just kind of coming down to the question of okay, in order to be a faithful pastor to the, my flock, what does it mean for our church to be healthy, biblically speaking?
1: So when you talk about service, though, because um, I've se- I've seen this happen with churches, they they. They preach the word. They 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 have good solid preaching. They have decent community, but their service is all geared towards serving the church. So uh, your service is setting up and tearing down for the church service. Your service is hosting a community group for other church members. Your service is um, helping out in the nursery. Uh, your service ends up being all inward-facing towards the, the church. So, do you feel like Titus Titus has anything to say say to that? Like where the direction of our service should mostly be pointed, or or is it just all service? And as long as you're serving, it's it's fine.
2: It's interesting you say that. Um, I mean, you ask that because and you, and the observations you make are accurate. Of course, uh, there's a lot of. <laughs> churches, I think, that are very good uh, when it comes to sort of trying to preserve doctrinal orthodoxy and so on, um, but at the same time uh, error when it comes to uh, really concentrating, thinking purposefully, and being intentional of reaching outside their walls to, uh, to, to the rest of the world. Um on the other hand, of course, there are churches that are so interested in, in reflecting their culture that they're willing to, you know, give up fundamentals of the gospel and, and neither of those options are, are given by Paul and Titus 2. Um, but yes, to answer your question specifically in relation to evangelism, I mean, Paul is, is interestingly says, I want you to have good works so that those people who are outside the church will see. Uh, something genuine and real in Christianity. Um, so it's interesting. He, the very first motivation that Paul gives for good works is actually unbelievers. Um, it's it's that unbelievers would see. Uh, the love and service of Christians, and in the love and service of Christians, they would they would just be dumbfounded. Uh, you know, if they if they want to speak against you, they have nothing to say against you. And if they if they are interested or, or inquisitive, then they are won over uh, by your by your good works. And so and so this this. Um, this vision for a kingdom vision uh, for even the local church is very much present in Titus two and and Paul says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And so training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So that's interesting. Paul actually uh, says, yes, you live godly individual lives, keeping in mind that God has a, uh, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so there is a vision for the kingdom,
1: even in individual godly lives. You know, that's... <laughs> Every time I'm confronted by something like that with Paul, like we have a responsibility on how we share the gospel with other people. Because how we share the gospel impacts uh, how someone receives it. And so every time I hear that, it's always sometimes like a little bit of a, it, maybe there's there's I don't know for you I mean you went to Reformed theological seminary but I went I mean I went to Covenant theological seminary mm-hmm. and uh, so I coming from a very much a Reformed background and sometimes for me like I feel that tension like but someone's called by God God they're predestined God calls them to Himself but somehow I'm now responsible for how I communicate the gospel to them and so sometimes like I feel I feel that tension uh in, in my own in my own life. And so go after going through this and spending all this time with Paul, uh, seeing, seeing that how do you how do you think we can help better help Christians who are reformed, uh, think through um, how they share the gospel with other people and how they bear a responsibility in that, even though there's a sovereign God who predestines everything, yet we are still bound and called. How do you oh, think yeah. we can how people help people navigate through that.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely essential. Um, and, and I think the interesting thing is, I think it comes almost intuitively in other areas, uh, even of doctrinal kind of areas. And I'll give you an example: um, any, almost any reform circle, but even outside a reform circle, if you if you ask somebody, you know, uh, are your times in God's hands? Then they'll say, absolutely. You know, God, God knows. Uh, how long he wants me here and what he wants me here for, um, but then when they, when they go out and get in their car and they're driving, they're not going to drive as if uh, it doesn't matter. Right, <laughs> they're going to, they're going to, they're going to drive uh, as safely as they possibly can, uh, thoughtful of other people around them as they possibly can, in order to make it to their destination. And so, there is this balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility that we have. And but I think we interact with it much more intuitively on on daily practical things. But when it comes to evan- when it comes to evangelism, all of a sudden we're like, oh no! But God is sovereign, and He'll just do whatever He wants. Um, but the fact is, of course, um just like uh just it is true that God is sovereign, and He has appointed the end from the beginning, but the means by which he uh has appointed that that end be reached. Is by uh, the the obedience of his people, and so we are engaged in evangelism and and actually every area of our Christian life. Um, perseverance is another example. Yes, yes, I do believe in the eternal, um, you know, pr- preservation perseverance of of God's people, but. Um, I also know that if I don't read my Bible and pray every day, I wander away from Jesus. Um, And so whether it's my own personal life or sharing the gospel with other people as artfully, as winsomely as I possibly can, uh, we have to recognize that yes, God is sovereign, but God has appointed means, and that means include includes my very best efforts to serve Him in every way I can. And you you mentioned Paul. Paul is the is the perfect person for this. No one is stronger on on sovereignty of God than Paul. But also, no one is stronger on the responsibility of the individual than Paul. Paul says, "I would give, I would give my very soul." um if if one of my uh, loved ones and one of my family members could come to to know the Lord he said i you know i i um i I do anything within my power in order to be a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile, whatever I can do, whatever I can be in order, of course, within the parameters of his own orthodoxy and, and of course, the parameters of the sovereignty of God. But doing everything within his power to um, to pursue the, the will of God as it is revealed in his word.
1: So, what what's one of the biggest obstacles that you're you're seeing that in, in the landscape now of just churches living out this Titus two model on how we're supposed to live and how the church is supposed to function? What do you what do you think is some of the biggest obstacles you've seen? Well, I, you know, honestly, I, I'm
2: it's hard to 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 maybe just list one or two, but I, as I think about it, um, I've traveled abroad quite a bit uh, doing. Um, just uh, missions and and pastor conferences and so on. And I'll say this, it does seem to me that, for instance, if, if the churches in southern India uh, to them, they, there's just this. Re, there's this reality: is if we don't do evangelism, if we don't share the gospel with our neighbors, there's not going to be Christians here at next generation. Uh, there's just a recognition of that, and and in other words, the the responsibility is so obvious to them um, that they they just it, it, it's not like they have you have to convince them. Oh no, you got to do evangelism, even though God is sovereign. They're just out there doing it. Um, and uh, I think for, um, for Christians in the West, and particularly American Christians, uh, because I say the West, but actually I think Christians in Europe probably feel that same urgency that I'm describing. But in America, and particularly in the Bible Belt, I think there is still this illusion that we have that we think uh, somebody, you know, somehow the church is going to continue and, and the next generation is still going to be here with the gospel, you know, really no matter what we do. And so, um, and so there's, there's the, the luxury. That constantly, you know, tempt to distract anybody, uh, distract Christians as well, and um, you know the comfortableness of our of our surroundings and so on. But there's just not an urgency because we don't think if I don't if if I am not faithful in my in my role in my place in my in this generation, um, then the next generation may not know Jesus. Um, then you know it just changes everything. And I will say I think most. And most Christians I know, anyway, do sense that in relation to their own family, perhaps. So they're very intentional sharing the gospel with their own kids, um, but but they don't feel that same obligation or urgency. Oftentimes, I'll say we. I'm not trying to to speak just about everybody else's failings. I, I, this is something that I'm part of myself. But I think we don't we don't feel. As urgent as we as we ought to on a daily basis about sharing the gospel outside of our home and our church and those circles that we're comfortable with.
1: absolutely fair point. I mean, I, I see that through all sorts of different areas in the church, though. I mean, there's I mean, I I'm in a region right now where they're incredibly intentional about trying the church plan all over the place. But you end up looking around, and unless you have the skills that they feel are necessary to church plant, they don't want to train you. Hmm. So for me, it's the weirdest thing. I'm I'm looking around. I'm like, where are you going to get this army of church planters if you're not going to teach the guys the skills they need to go out and church plant? How are you going to develop this army? Like, are you going to go and just ship them off from all other parts of the country? Like it so for me, I think the church as large, I mean it's. I think you're making some good points, but as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, man, this hits hits all different levels. And the irony is that we as evangelicals uh, have forgotten how to evangelize. Yeah, the central thing on why we are a group, uh, we don't know how to do well anymore. So, and it hasn't taken us that long to lose it. So, I mean, it's just. For me, I mean, you're you're saying some, you're spitting some fire right now, buddy. <laughs> well, you, you know, back to Titus too. It is interesting. I mean, here here Paul
2: doesn't say to Titus, you know, survey the area and grab the most gifted men and, and do amazing things with them. <laughs> he says, hey, don't forget to tell the older men to teach younger men the basic yeah. stuff, you know, and don't forget to tell the younger women to teach the uh, the older women to teach the younger women, you know, the basic stuff of Christianity and and. And, uh, and Chrysostom and Augustine actually are both talk about how striking it is in their age um, for, for, for Paul to even address servants and to say, uh, you know, they're like, these, these are people that everybody else in society is totally ignoring and doesn't even think about, and Paul is actually, uh, you know, recruiting them for his army, you know? Um, and so there is this, this, this uh, obviously practical dynamic where where um, I think maybe because we are so global these days, and we do have a lot of resources—at least in the West—still uh, to this point, we think no, we'll just fly this guy in from from you know this other state in order to 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 do this. But but of course, Paul is writing to Titus and says, use what you've got, use the guys that are in your church, use the older men, the younger you know the younger women, uh, use the bond servants, and and every one of you um, be faithful in your particular place of service, and and that's the Let's not ever forget; these are the churches that turned the world upside down. I mean, these are the churches that did the amazing thing of of bringing Christianity from the first generation to our generation. Yeah. And so, this is not this is not uh, you know this is it's not like you have to have you know uh, the professional uh, guys come in with all the consultants and, and get this done. Paul's talking to, to Titus and says, "Hey, you've got what you need right at your
0: fingertips." So, how does this play out for you in in your in your role at your local church?
2: Well, I'll tell you uh, several. Uh, just uh, writing this book and, and and really thinking and praying through Titus two, particularly, um, I'll just say areas that that I was impressed and or convicted by myself. Because, like I said, I'm I'm not I'm not an expert on these things either. I, I certainly you know I certainly have areas to grow. Um, but i was I was really impressed with um, first of all just the absolute necessity of of recognizing the authority of god's word in fact, the whole the whole Titus 2 is actually bookended by this instruction. The very first instruction, the very first verse of Titus 2 says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Yeah. And then the very last verse, uh, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So th- he's saying there is no person inside your church or outside your church who does not need to know these things, who does not need to um, to see and understand the authority of God's word and God's revelation over the, the relevance of it. To their lives, but also the authority of it over their lives, and so I, I tend to um, to to think in terms of you know uh, probably be. I don't know, intimidated, you know, as a pastor, uh, thinking, you know, well, I mean, I, you know, who am I that they would listen to me, and I'm not this, uh, you know, I've, it's not like I've got all the answers. Uh, but but that's not what Paul says to Titus. Titus, you're so gifted, everybody ought to listen to you. Paul says, Titus, you've got the Word of God, and yeah. the Word of God is the authority, and and you, therefore, have the obligation to declare these things and not let anyone disregard you. Um and so I think that's one of the areas that, that really has struck me is that, that we go as pastors, preachers, evangelists, uh, missionaries in the authority of God's Word alone. That's the only authority we have, but when we have that authority, we, we, we have everything we need. Um, but, but then also, just the other side of this, um, that, that you really don't, if you picture the healthy church as a flowering plant, uh, Paul used the word adorned with good works um, if you're not intentional about the, the, these good works that, that, uh, that are winsome to unbelievers and, and honoring to God and loving toward others, if you're not intentional about that, you're basically like, you can have all the doctrinal orthodoxy in the world, but you're like a flower without a flower. I mean, it's it, there's nothing pretty about that. You know, imagine a. Uh, you know, I used to mow yards when I was a when I was a kid for extra money, and uh, you know, you you uh, mow over the dandelions, and uh, they still got the roots, they've got the stem, but yeah. there's no dandelion. You know, uh, there's nothing adorning uh, what's uh, what is uh, being grown, and so uh, so Paul says that's just as necessary. Um, that's an, an essential part of this, and so I'd say those are the two areas that have really been really been uh, impressive to me as i thought through Titus 2, and, and also just trying to think through the lines between those two things. So in other words, Every good work I'm involved in should be able to be traced back down to the root of God's authority. Um, But also, every every truth that I see in God's authoritative Word should be I should be able to trace some fruit that is coming out of that truth in my life and in the life of our church. And so, I think there there ought to be a, a, a. an inseparable connection that we're constantly uh, keeping in our minds that that every every good work, every adornment needs to be nourished by the, the roots of God's Word. But every everything that is rooted in God's Word, if, we're, if it's real, will uh, be adorned with beautiful works that come out of it. You can't just be meditating on these things in your dark study and, and not be changed by it in any way that changes the world around you.
0: So, was there anything that you stopped doing once you started thinking like this? Once you started studying Titus two and have written the book and all that, anything I stopped doing? Yeah,
2: yeah. Good question. Um, I, I think uh, I've not th- thought of it in quite those terms, but as you as you ask the question, yeah, I think I think one of the things that. Um, uh, the best way I know how to put it just off the cuff is is spinning my wheels. Um, and that is, yeah. in other words, uh, you know, just sort of uh, kind of the the what I mentioned before, the endless distraction that you can have as a pastor. Like you yeah. can just constantly, you can guilt yourself no end, that you're not doing this, you're not doing this. And when you start trying to do, you know, A, then you leave off B, you try to do B, you leave off A, and then C pops up. And, and you just, you can end up spinning your wheels constantly. And and what was helpful for me uh, is is just to say, okay, these are my priorities. this is what I'm about as a pastor, this is what we're about as a church. Anything that fits into this paradigm, we're doing anything that doesn't fit into this, you know let's get rid of. let's let's uh, let's dump the the extra luggage and and go,
0: you know. Yeah huh, cool.
1: Is there anything you started doing more than?
2: Well, you know, uh, it's a good question. I would say one thing is that I have uh, been digging into God's Word with greater confidence. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't still wrestle, of course, with it, but it has given me greater confidence in, in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Just to see Paul write Titus, and his basic solution is Preach the word, man. You know, yeah. uh, that is just so encouraging to me. It's so encouraging to know. You know, um, yes, I do need. Uh, I do need. To still learn and I still need to grow. and and even right now, I'm pursuing uh, a doctorate with uh, Midwestern Theological Seminary. I think that's helpful. But the reason that I think it's helpful is not just in order to have another you know pl- plate that I'm spinning or another ball that I'm juggling, but it all is is coming toward this effort, toward this goal that um, that I, I want to be preaching the Word of god. and and from that preaching, Needs to be coming fruit, uh, adorning good works in my life and in my church. I mean, that's it. That's you know, another way of another way of summing this all up is what Jesus is beautiful. Uh, Marvellously concise, Great Commission, right? And that is, go and make disciples, and then teach them everything that I've taught you. <laughs> you know, and um, and that's that's uh, this beautiful summary of the of the church's mission. Uh, we we are going in the authority of the ascended Jesus, and we are making disciples, and then those disciples we make, we are we are continuing to teach and grow and disciple to the best of our ability. But we can't leave either of those things off. It's just this. This beautifully balanced uh, commission that Jesus gives His church.
0: So, what?
1: So, one of the one of the big issues that we're having today is we do have we do have the fight, like of of is the church is the church? What should the church be concerned with? Should the church be concerned with with preaching the word and truth, or should we be most concerned with uh, being an agent of social change? In in our communities, in our country, in our world. So, how does this help inform, basically, what the the, the big debate or, or the big struggle going on in a, in a lot of churches, especially in a lot of Reformed circles, on the social gospel versus versus traditional orthodoxy? Like, are they are they opposed? Is is it are they are they something that that can't be worked out or or, or what? Yeah,
2: I think uh, when you when you say traditional orthodoxy versus social justice, I think that is, um, and, and I recognize you're you're reflecting the the debate as it is represented in Christian mm-hmm. circles today. But I think that that is really the um, the the crux of the issue is that those things should not be versus one another. Uh, I think yeah. we shouldn't think of them in that way. Um that uh, yes, you you, that Orthodox Christian Christianity has always had this amazing impact on the communities and and on the even governments that that are uh, that are are have the Christians within them., uh, so you see the world being turned upside down by Christians who are doing this very thing. I remember being struck by a Tertullian who was himself, Um, who himself was against Christianity, uh, eventually became one of the great apologists for Christianity, and he said what really caught his attention was that in in tremendous times of plague, when he said the non-Christians were actually throwing their own family members out on the street just in case they might have the plague to keep them from getting it uh, themselves, he said Christians were taking strangers into their house to take care of them. And he said he never seen anything like it, and that's that's what converted him to to Christianity. And so I don't think you can say, you know, Christians, we need to be uh, holding to Orthodox truth and sharing Orthodox truth, but I don't think you can even think of doing that in a way that isn't absolutely revelatory for an unbelieving world, that isn't actually ex- that isn't transformative in in the social sphere around us. And so um, and so yes, I think, um, I think Jonathan Lehman puts it very well, just at the very basic uh, level, just reflecting to the world around us that every human being is created in the image of God in whatever issue we're talking about, whether it's social justice, whether it's immigration, whether it is uh, pro-life abortion issues, just this powerful message that we have as Christians because of the the Bible uh, description of humans, um, that every human is created in the image of God, that we treasure, we honor every human being. And of course, reflecting that also in the way that we even converse with human beings who disagree with us, and especially converse with other Christians who disagree with us.
0: So as a pastor of a of a local body, what balance do you look for in doing those types of things between, between programs, between like the church doing something, and and training up people in your church to go and do those things themselves?
2: Well, you know, I mean, honestly, this is going to come from 15-plus years of pastoring. Uh, Every church just can't do everything. Um, you you can't be you know active in uh, helping uh, the uh, single women with crisis crisis pregnancies down at the you know at the local um, uh, uh, ministry and you know fighting uh, social justice wars and uh, also reaching out uh, to to you know the the drug those who are you know have drug abuse in, in your community and do, I mean no church can do everything um, so I think The best counsel that I could give in this regard would be to, one, be supportive and encouraging and prayerful about all the areas of possible Christian ministry that are out there. So, yes, you're excited about the person who's involved in politics, even if you aren't involved in politics. You're excited about the person who's ministering uh, to the homeless, even if you can't minister to the homeless. Um, So, you're supportive and you're prayerful for the whole kingdom-wide effort, but then you are perhaps uh, prayerfully pursuing as a local church, depending on your size and your resources, of course, on on the on the. Limited. I'm not. I'm not going to say just one or two, but at least limited number of things you can actually engage and involve in effectively. I mean, you can't do everything effectively. And so, I would say, what are the burdens that are on the hearts of the people in your congregation? What are the areas where, uh, where you can, um, where you can make a difference? Where maybe God has even opened up a door, an opportunity for ministry? I know at our church, for instance, um, there's a wonderful ministry. Uh, that hosts international students as they come to the university here, um, and so these um, the particular group is ministering to to uh, Chinese and Indian mainly, but but our 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 uh, section of the of the ministry was to Chinese students, and so Chinese students were coming in and uh, coming into the university. They've never been in the states before, and we get the opportunity to pick them up at the airport, show them around town, help them get their student ID, you know, uh, offer hospitality in our home for a week or so while. They get their feet on the ground, help them find an apartment, and then get them connected with a Bible study. And what we found over and over again is, God, one, God is just doing amazing things in China right now. I mean, it's just yeah. amazing. We actually have found that it's it's actually surprising to us if a Chinese student doesn't get converted. I mean, huh. I, that's how remarkable the the um, the the interest is uh, on the part of the Chinese students. Some of them have even come over here saying, "I came over here for two things: to study and find out about Jesus." Wow. Um, and so. So, you know this is just an opportunity that um that is uh, through this ministry is open to our church and and it's something we can do. It's something that that we have been excited to to see fruit being born from. and uh, you know, and so it's something that we have we have. Uh, have I think felt obligated and rightly so to pursue. But you can't do everything as a local church. I think it's sometimes unrealistic. We we have this expectation that, you know, oh, you know, if I do this then I can't do this and if you know, and, and so we either are paralyzed into nothing or we're trying to do a little bit of everything and neither of those are going to be
0: effective. So like last night I was, I was just hanging out with uh, Josh Gonzalez, who we recently had on the podcast and he's, I I think his church is a good example. It's a, it's a really young church. There's only like, I think it's like 40 people that show up on any given week. I think they're about two years old and how, I, I guess, how would you see in a church like that, a younger church plant, how would you see that particular passion like kind of forming or like that, that. Like, how does that come to be? And and maybe even in, in your example, like, how did you guys come to be a body that houses these international students?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it, it's, it's appropriate to, I mean, be real. Um, and especially if you've got young, when you say young as a church, are you saying the members are young as well? In other words, it's mainly, you know, sort of millennials and that kind of thing? Or are you saying it's just young as a body? Both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I think. I mean, one of the cool things, of course, about being young is I was just saying, actually, about the disadvantage of doing seminary later in life. Well, you have flexibility, and you just have opportunities that you, you know, that that you may not have later in life, and so. To take advantage of that is absolutely appropriate, and again, very much in line with uh, with scriptural teaching. You know, hey, this is your season of life. Grab it and, and go with it. Um, and so I would say, you know, take, taking Titus 2, for example, just sitting down with the congregation and saying, look, guys, God wants us to do good works such that— uh, the word of God is not reviled, and so that God, whose grace has appeared for all, to, for the salvation of all people, is glorified through us. So, how can we do that? And let's get on our knees. Let's spend, you know, let's let's say this coming week is going to be, um, you know, fasting and prayer for w- Lord. What we are seeking you. We want to know in what areas you might be opening up doors of opportunity, um, and, and just assume. That, that God, I think this is totally fair to assume, God wants you to do something, so therefore He's going to lead you in what it is He wants you to do. And so, it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily be the first thing that pops in your head. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you may you may knock on some doors and they, they don't open, um, but but you don't stop pursuing God until He gives you a mission as a church. And, um, and, and, and of course, when I say a mission, I mean, of course, uh, broadly speaking, we have our marching orders, and we've already described them as the Great Commission and so yeah. on. But Lord, but how does that, how does that, Lord, how, how do you want that to look in our community, in our church? How do you what, what can we do to glorify your name? And as we as we ask that question, which I think is the problem, a lot of times we're just not even asking that question, but as we beg the Lord and hold on to him and say, I'm not going to let go of you until you until you give us this
1: blessing, I think we, we'll come away limping, but we'll come away with a mission. Hmm. Well, on on top of that, too, though, I mean, one of the things that I what I what I've seen, I mean, during my time in seminary, was that a lot of Christians, because I look back at my own life, what what was it like for me growing up in a church, being in my in my twenties and and even for a little bit in my thirties, being being in church circles, and one of the hardest things for me was when I was in seminary is like, you know, I I believe all these things about Jesus, I believe he's the Son of God, I believe he's eternal. I believe he is the second person of the Trinity. I believe he died and rose again. Um, And I believe he is sovereign, he is king, and we are right to worship him. But I had no idea how any of those truth statements impacted my life on a daily basis. Mm. And I guarantee you most of the people in churches that go to church and don't do a whole lot of service outside of it, they don't have a good grasp of evangelism. I guarantee you one of the most central things in their lives is they have no idea how the truth of Jesus impacts them on a daily life other than knowing that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Hmm. Those two things aren't linked. So when those two things aren't linked, and then you're at work, and someone just, your, your co-worker is there devastated because his wife just left him, or Someone's family member just just got cancer, or someone else, like they're 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 going through and they have a big life decision. Uh, you have nothing to give them that can point them to Christ because in your own life, you don't do it. And so I think what we need, partly, if if we as evangelicals want to learn how to evangelize again, one of the things we're going to need to end up doing, is discipling our people in such a way that the reality of the person of Jesus impacts how they live on a daily life. And one of the things you said a little while ago, Justin, was true. And you didn't use these words, but this is, this is what you were doing. The indicatives inform the imperatives. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, informs who we are and what we are to do. And I think we as churches and and, and pastors and, and ministry leaders and just deeply committed Christians, we need to, one, be figuring out how does Jesus impact us on a daily life? And two, how can we teach other Christians how to do it? Hmm. Because once you find a way to start teaching other Christians how to do it, you can then watch them because then they start to notice... You know, this is what we can do here. We can do this here. We don't have to sit and wait for the church to come up with a great idea. Mm-hmm. They can intuitively start doing it in their own lives. And I mean, the, the people of the church go go everywhere. People of the church are are, are all over the place. Yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent.
2: And 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 to 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 also um, come at the exact same point, but also hopefully in an encouraging way. I, I think it's important. To recognize, and I even I wrote an article uh, recently for Gospel Center Discipleship that was kind of along these lines because I'm afraid writing a book about healthy church can come across as nobody's doing it good enough. Now here's another uh, you know weight on your shoulders to bear, another guilt trip to take with you. Um, how come you know you haven't fixed this yet? Um, and one of the things that I think I, I do want to say is God uses unhealthy Christians and unhealthy churches every day or else he couldn't use anybody. Absolutely. I mean, you know yeah. we 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 are we are all unhealthy Christians. Just just let's just admit it. God uses people with a doctrinal error or else or else there wouldn't be anybody to use. And God uses people who don't have a perfect balance of their doctrine and practice, or else there wouldn't be anybody to use. And God uses churches that are like that as well. And so I just, I want to, I would want to encourage, just like we were basically saying, you know, hey, Paul didn't write to Titus and say, you know, find the the cream of the cream of the crop and and get those guys and, and really turn the world upside down. He's like, you know, don't forget the old people. Um, don't forget, you know the the bond servants. Um, uh, the God is in the business of using weak people um not you know you don't have to get a theological degree before you can share the gospel with someone effectively um, you don't have to be uh, doing everything perfectly before you can be healthy as a church you don't have to be um, you don't have to be perfect of course uh, because God doesn't God God is using imperfect churches in every generation so it was striking to me to actually think about this for instance do you think that Titus actually perfectly did everything that Paul told him in Titus 2 to No, right? Of course he (laughs) did, because Titus was just like you and me. He was a failing pastor who tried and failed. Um, And so it's helpful. It's actually helpful for me. It's encouraging. I mean, I know that's kind of a weird way of getting to encouragement, but to me it is very encouraging to recognize. You know, Titus didn't even do these. Titus didn't do Titus two perfectly. Um, and so, and so, yeah, we want to, we want to stir our hearts up and we don't want to be satisfied with the status quo and we don't want to be, um, thinking that just because we grew up Christian, then therefore, you know, we know what it is to be a good Christian. Um, but, but on the other hand, we we don't, we don't have to wait to be perfect before God can use us. God is using imperfect Christians and imperfect, uh, churches every day or else he wouldn't have anybody to use.
0: Absolutely. Well, we got to get wrapping up here. Um, What's the book called? Where can we find it?
2: Yeah, the title of it is Adorned, How
0: to Grow a Biblically Beautiful Church.
2: Um, You can order it off Amazon. Uh, The publisher, Day One, is out of the UK, out of the United Kingdom, and so uh, ordering it from their website's a little expensive if you're here in the States, (laughs) but But yeah, you can order it locally on Amazon, uh, easy as can be. And you're welcome to go to my website, justinhuffman.org, and uh, there's a there's a page for the book where you can read more more about it and link to the to the purchase uh, order and so on.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. Uh, This has been really fun.
2: Likewise, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the really good, uh, worthwhile conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Justin.
0: You've been listening to the Dead Men Podcast. For more articles, ebooks, videos, and other Christ-centered resources like this one, visit deadmenstuff.com. Email us at, at gmail.com, and don't forget to rate us on iTunes. If our ministry has impacted you in any way, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com/deadmenstuff.
1: This episode of the Dead Men Podcast has been brought to you by Chris Orsini Productions. You can find Chris Orsini at Chris Orsini Productions on Facebook and ChrisOrsini.com. This episode of the Dead Men Podcast has been brought to you in part by The Implications of Faith by Craig Miller. Jesus has called us not to believe, but to follow him. If we say we believe in him, but have not fully surrendered our lives to this pursuit, do we really believe? And the implications of faith, Craig Miller explores the necessary relationship between what we claim to believe and how we live our lives. This book can be bought on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback, and you can also buy it at DeadMenStuff.com.